and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Um, before we started recording, you and I both decided, because so many people are having such bad weeks yeah we decided the end of the end of september was just a shit show just an absolute shit show for so many people that we know and love so we decided that you know what i know this is the second episode so it's probably this is like definitely at the end of october but we are speaking this it's middle of october it's the middle of october we are speaking truth to this we are we are manifesting it that it's going to be an outstanding October. Outstanding October. Outstanding October. Only so terrific things are going to happen. Only incredible things are going to happen for us and all of our listeners. Everyone under the power of my voice, you will have an outstanding October. It's retroactively. pumpkin season. It's oh. cozy blanket season. There's it's a crispness to the air. Crispness. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's candy. There's candy. Just think of the candy alone. And you know, this is the second to last candy season before the great, like, dry candy season. What? Of, like, spring and summer. Oh. You know, like, they're the oh. candy <laughs> holidays. No, no, no. No. Oh, didn't you hear? There's a new law. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to break it to you on our podcast, Julia. There's a new law that's outlawing big, candy except for big holidays. Big Dental managed to get candy outlawed. Oh, can I complain about dentists for like a second? Please. This has nothing to do with my topic. Steve comes home the other day with half of his face like obliterated. And I'm like, what happened? He is like, oh, I had, I guess I have, I had four cavities. And so he worked on two and then he did the other two. And then it turns out he noticed that I have two on the bottom too. I said, are you, is, is this, a, <laughs> tell me the truth. Do you go to this man's basement? Like, is he a legitimate? Do you just go to somebody's house? Is this a real dentist? Is this a real dentist? Because I have never in Maybe my life. Maybe he's just in Fight Club. He can't tell you about it. Yeah, he just goes. <laughs> every six months, he goes and gets his ass kicked by a dentist. Or the man he calls the dentist. dentist. <laughs> Ooh, that could be a good movie script. Oh, I like that. The dentist. Like, I'm going to collect some teeth. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, like this is not a real dentist, right? Like I have never heard his teeth are perfectly fine. They're not like brown and rotten. Like he's a healthy individual. He brushes his teeth. I watch him. He uses, he uses mouthwash. Does he I don't use mouthwash. I think that's the real thing that the dentist can tell. Oh, the dentist can tell. (laughs) If you lie to them, that's when they tell you that you have a couple more cavities. (laughs) Maybe that's it. I, I don't know. I don't think I've ever, I don't watch him in his, you know, oral health practice. So <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I, you know, I, I don't know what to tell him. I've never had a, I've never had a cavity. So that's why I think that a big tooth is a lie. <laughs> Dentists are not real as far as I'm concerned. Well, now that Lauren has outed herself as an anti-dentite. <laughs> I am an um... anti-dentite. <laughs> I'm a rabid anti-dentite. And now that I've done that, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, more art history stuff. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So um, again, because I'm teaching this semester and I'm basically writing like a, an involved podcast episode plus slides plus like accurate dates <laughs> twice a week for the next 15 weeks or whatever the hell is going on. It's a nightmare. <sighs> And my kids are great. Like most of my kids are amazing. Like they come up to me afterwards and they're like, that was really cool. I'll be like, thanks guys. Um, but then I have kids that I'm, that are like opening openly, like scrolling on their phones, like looking at Instagram. Like, and you don't in the kick them out? Row. No, because uh, this isn't, this isn't for them. I'm doing this for me. I'm getting paid to be there. They're not. <laughs> they're paying to be there. Oof. No, I'm no tolerance. No tolerance. Well, I also have like 50 kids mm. in a dark auditorium. I feel like a cult leader. Anyway, <laughs> so I recently did a, a lecture on Egypt. And, you know, early Western art history stuff I find to be like kind of boring because it's a lot of like ancient stone sculpture and all of this stuff. So I did we a whole think slide. This was a fertility yeah. idol. Yeah, yeah. Like, this, this is a bumpy rock. <laughs> 
this doesn't even look like a woman. Are you sure that this is a piece of art? Like that's basically the first mm, 7,000 years of art. So essentially I did like a couple of slides on this topic and I think they really enjoyed it. So today I'm going to be adopting this for the podcast and this episode is going to be all about Egyptomania. Egyptomania. <laughs> That's what I was singing today, too. <laughs> so we have not done an episode on like Egyptomania or King Tut or anything like that. We did do episode 94, Animal Heads and Gods of the Dead. That was part of, that was the year we did both Mythology May and Dictator December. <sighs> do you realize that? <laughs> that, was, that was, I mean, the mythology part was probably more fun, but it was a lot oh, of work. It was still a lot fun. of work. It was a lot of work. And Dictator December was both mentally and psychologically taxing. Yes. <laughs> so I'm sorry, guys. We will not be doing Dictator December again. But um, we did touch a little bit about you did a great job. That was a Julia episode. It was a very good. Thank you. Um, but today I'm going to be talking about like this kind of like aura around Egypt and why we're so obsessed with it. So Egyptomania basically has been around as long as there has been like colonialist penetration into Africa. Mm -hmm. So from Napoleon to Elizabeth Taylor to the Book of the Dead being characterized as the quote-unquote Bible of ancient Egypt. In fact, that's not even close. Right. You know, it's a collection of spells for guiding the deceased to the afterlife. You talked about that in that episode. The modern history of the culture is basically erasure. So even the name of the country, Egypt, is an imposition. Early on, Egyptians referred to their kingdom as Kemet, or the Black Land, which is a reference to this kind of rich soil along the Nile, and later as Huatkapta. Um, Egypt is actually a Greek term, as the Greeks found the local name hard to pronounce when they invaded Egypt in 332 BCE. Typical. Yeah, typical. So this understanding and co-opting of Egyptian art and culture is rooted in this Hellenistic era, the Greek Hellenistic era, when the ruling Greeks took over the religious rituals of Egypt and adopted the pharaonic traditions down to the headdresses and the colossal statues. Um, and they too were fascinated by ancient Egypt. Um, and when they were replaced by the Romans, this obsession kind of began anew. So obelisks and Egyptian-style architecture sprang up in Rome, even as Egypt itself slowly began to resemble the rest of the Roman Empire. It was kind of becoming homogenous and kind of absorbed into the Roman Empire by this point. However, ancient Egypt would live on in the Western imagination, if nowhere else. So there were basically three things that allowed Egyptomania to really take off in other parts of the world. So there was, one, the decline of the Ottoman Empire, and that made Egypt kind of ripe for entry by Westerners. Uh, two, the Enlightenment provided a climate which fostered a desire for knowledge of ancient cultures. And finally, improvements in sailing technology during the Renaissance made it easier to get to Egypt and bring artifacts out. That makes total sense. Right? So as far back as the 16th century, wealthy Europeans were holding what was known as mummy unwrapping parties. And we've talked about this in the past. <laughs> so this was essentially where guests would unwrap a literal mummified body on someone's dining table, and they'd get to keep whatever thing they could find in the wrappings. Uh. <laughs> Which is insane, if you think about it. Like, what? So, uh, so like, the audacity. <laughs> Um, Egypt also had an, an impact on culture during this period as well. William Shakespeare's work, Antony and Cleopatra, dramatized the romance that helped bring about the Roman occupation of Egypt. Uh, mummy mania was also fueled by this very odd brief belief in Europe that mummies held medicinal powers. Mm -hmm. um, King Francois I of France, who reigned from 1515 to 1547, he would travel with a bag of crushed mummy powder to ward off illness. I think he was one of the crazy ones. We yeah, had a, we I mean, had a big string of nutso ones and I mean who didn't in the Western Empire so you know what I mean like there was a lot of inbreeding um yeah it would be either snorted or like mixed into drinks oh it's very God. disgusting oh my God. so in the 18th century Napoleon invaded Egypt and although he held onto the country for only three years this was long enough for a French team of scholars to explore the country and make drawings of what they found and they also discovered the all-important Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. Um, their work was published in a series of volumes called Description l'Egypte between 1809 and 1822. And through drawings and detailed information, they brought home the wonders of ancient Egypt to the audiences of Europe. 
So the next 100 years would be filled with European and American Egyptian activity. Um, the Egyptian language was deciphered, which allowed for great advances in the study. Museums across the Western world, from London to Vancouver, had this insatiable demand for Egyptian antiquities. Mm -hmm. uh, some artifacts were brought out through careful scientific excavation. Others were brought out of Egypt by amateurs. Mm -hmm. uh, many antiquities were stolen, and in one notable case in the 1830s, Howard Vise, who was a British colonel, and John Paring, they explored the Great Pyramids using dynamite. Um, which I would argue the word explored doesn't really, like, capture what, like, dynamite does. <laughs> but, uh, you know... Whatever. That's the phrase that Loosely. they used. <laughs> Loosely. Yeah. Loosely discovered through dynamite, <laughs> the pyramids. So um, it's difficult to say what, why exactly Egypt caught the imagination of Europe and America kind of so suddenly. Mm -hmm. uh, but there seemed to be a number of events that happened at the same time that allowed this Egyptomania to flourish. So things really, I mean, the main one, things really exploded when... Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered, or Tutankhamun, as yes. the British say. Um, so Tutankhamun's tomb had been untouched for some 3,000 years until the British archaeologist Howard Carter discovered it in 1922 after years of fruitless excavations funded by Lord Carnarvon. So I'm going to just tell the quick story about what happened with King Tut's tomb. Yes, I love it. So, yeah. So Lord Carnarvon employed the British Egyptologist Howard Carter to excavate the site of what was known as KV-62, which was the, the Tutankhamun site. Mm -hmm. And in 1922, Carter returned to a line of huts that he had abandoned a few seasons earlier. So at the end of a tunnel was this second sealed door that had been breached and resealed long ago in mm -hmm. antiquity. So Carter decided to make a hole in the door, and he used a candle to check for foul gases before looking inside. To make sure that it wasn't going to explode. Yeah, that there wasn't going to be like, that he didn't like hit some kind of like, you know, natural gas or something like that. Jeez. At first I could see nothing, he, he wrote, the hot air escaping from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere, the glint of gold. After a pause, Carnarvon asked, can you see anything? And Carter replied, yes, wonderful things. <laughs> so the official opening of the tomb took place on November 29th, 1922, with the first press report in the Times appearing the next day. On February 16th, 1923, Carter opened the sealed doorway and confirmed it led to a burial chamber containing the sarcophagus of Tutankhamun. The tomb was considered the best preserved and most intact pharaonic tomb ever found in the Valley of Kings, and the discovery was eagerly covered by the world's press. However, much to the annoyance of other newspapers, Lord Carnarvon sold exclusive reporting rights to the Times. Mm -hmm. um, only Arthur Merton of that paper was allowed on the scene, and his vivid descriptions helped to establish Carter's reputation with the British public. So this is already the beginning of this kind of, um, like... Uh, advertising kind of uh, like entertainment aspect to what should be just like study, you know, oh, like right. archaeological study. Instead, Carter decided to like make kind of a sideshow out of it. Right. Um, towards the end of February, 1923, a rift between Lord Carnarvon and Carter, probably caused by a disagreement on how to manage the supervising Egyptian authorities, temporarily halted the excavation. Uh, work recommenced in early March after Lord Carnarvon apologized, and later that month, Lord Carnarvon died in Cairo on April 5th, 1923. More about that later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk. Don't worry. We'll talk about that. Um, Carter's meticulous assessing and cataloging of the thousands of objects in the tomb took nearly 10 years. Um, most were being moved to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo at the time. So despite the significance of his archaeological find, Carter received no honor from the British government. However, in 1926, he received the Order of the Nile third class from King Fuad I of Egypt. Now, the belief in a curse was brought to many people's attention due to the deaths of a few members of Howard Carter's team and other prominent visitors to the tomb shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. So here are the few people who died. So um, the famous Egyptologist James Henry Breasted worked with Carter soon after the first opening of the tomb. He reported how Carter sent a messenger on an errand to his house. On approaching his home, the messenger thought he heard a, quote, faint, almost human cry. 
Upon reaching the entrance, he saw the birdcage. He saw a birdcage occupied by a cobra, the symbol of the Egyptian monarchy. Carter's canary had died in its mouth, and this fueled local rumors of a curse. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. So Arthur Weigel, a previous inspector general of antiquities to the Egyptian government, reported that this was interpreted as Carter's house being broken into by the royal cobra, the same as that worn on the king's head to strike enemies (laughs) on the very day the king's tomb was being broken into. (laughs) And apparently an account of the incident was reported by the New York Times in December of 1922. So the first of the mysterious deaths was that of Lord Carnarvon, who financed the excavation. He had been bitten by a mosquito and later slashed the bite accidentally while shaving, and it became infected, and that resulted in blood poisoning. Ugh, what a dumb way to die. I know. Is that such a stupid way to die? Like, if that's a curse, then that's like, man, what a lame curse. Um, so two weeks before Carnarvon died, Marie Corelli, who's out, who is a novelist, wrote an imaginative letter that was published in the New York World magazine in which she quoted an obscure book that confidently asserted that dire punishment would follow any intrusion into a sealed tomb. (laughs) So a media frenzy followed with reports that a curse had been found in the king's tomb, though this was obviously untrue. Um, The superstitious Benito Mussolini, who had once accepted an Egyptian mummy as a gift, ordered its immediate removal from the Palazzo Chigi. (laughs) The only nice decision that Mussolini ever made. That Benito Mussolini ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Besides have tea with Cher. That's a deep cut. Um, It's a movie called Tea with Mussolini. Anyway, (laughs) Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, has to get like his, you know, fat Scottish fingers in here. So Arthur Conan Doyle suggested that Lord Carnarvon's death had been caused by, quote, elementals created by Tutankhamun's priests to guard the royal tomb. And this further fueled the media interest. Okay. Arthur Weigel reported that six weeks before Carnarvon's death, he had watched the Earl laughing and joking as he entered the King's tomb. And he said to a nearby reporter, I give him six weeks to live. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So the first autopsy carried out on the body of Tutankhamun by Dr. Derry found a healed lesion on the left cheek. But as Carnarvon had been buried six months previously, it was not possible to determine if the location of the wound on the king corresponded with the fatal mosquito bite on Carnarvon. Because that was one that of would the be things pretty that, nuts. like, yeah. that would be very weird. Um, a study of documents and scholarly sources led by the Lancet to conclude it unlikely that Carnarvon's death had anything to do with Tutankhamun's tomb, refuting another theory that exposure to toxic fungi had contributed to his demise. Um, the report points out that the Earl was only one of many to enter the tomb and on several occasions and that none of the others were affected. The cause of Carnarvon's death was reported as pneumonia supervening on facial erysipelas, a streptococcal infection of the skin and underlying soft tissue. Uh, pneumonia was thought to be only one of various complications arising from progressively invasive infection that eventually resulted in multi-organ failure. Um, the Earl had been prone to frequent and severe lung infections, according to the Lancet, and there had been a general belief that one acute attack of bronchitis could have killed him. In such a debilitated state, the Earl's immune system was easily overwhelmed by erysipelas. So... Uh, In 1925, the anthropologist Henry Field, accompanied by Breasted, visited the tomb and recalled the kindness and friendliness of Carter. He also reported how a paperweight given to Carter's friend Sir Bruce Ingram was composed of a mummified hand with its wrist adorned with a scarab bracelet marked with, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Soon after receiving the gift, Ingram's house burned down, followed by a flood when it was rebuilt. (gasps) Was the guy who visited him like, hey, man, do you know, (laughs) do you know what this bracelet says? Hey, did you take this out of there? Like on purpose? Should you you make a paperweight out of this? This seems in very poor taste. So who knows if that's true? Mm -hmm. Um, Howard Carter himself was entirely skeptical of such curses. He dismissed them as, quote, Tommy Rot and commented that, quote, the sentiment of the Egyptologist is not one of fear, but of respect and awe, entirely opposed to foolish superstitions. Okay, so he was like a good archaeologist. Yeah, he was a good archaeologist. He wasn't like a... Like, he didn't just, like, come in and strip everything and, like, give it to the British Museum. Yeah. No, he, he definitely, he did, yeah, he, he did it the right way. Yeah, he did his due diligence as an archaeologist. 
you know, all of that stuff went to the museum in Cairo. Mm -hmm. It was a whole thing. Um, However, in May 1926, he did report in his diary a sighting of a jackal of the same type as Anubis, the guardian of the dead, for the first time in over 35 years of working in the desert, although he did not attribute it to supernatural causes. So that's that. <laughs> um, skeptics of this curse have pointed out that many others who visited the tomb or helped to discover it lived long and healthy lives. Uh, a study showed that of the 58 people who were present when this tomb and sarcophagus were opened, only eight died within 12 years. All of the others were still alive, including Howard Carter, who died of lymphoma in 1939 at the age of 64. And the last survivors include Lady Everlyn Herbert, Lord Carnarvon's daughter, who was among the first people to enter the tomb after its discovery in November of 1922. She lived for a further 57 years and died in 1980. An American archaeologist, J.O. Kinnaman, who died in 1961, 39 years after the event. So here's a quick list of the deaths popularly attributed to the curse. George Herbert, 5th Earl of Carnarvon, died on April 5th, 1923, after a mosquito bite became infected. He died four months and seven days after the opening of the tomb. George J. Gould I, a visitor to the tomb, died in the French Riviera on May 16th, 1923, after he developed a fever following his visit. A.C. Mace, a member of Carter's excavation team, died in April of 1928, having suffered from pleurisy and pneumonia in his final years. Captain the Honorable Richard Bethel, Carter's secretary, died on November 15, 1929. He died in bed at a Mayfair club, the victim of a suspected smothering. So he was at a club. Wink. He was at a club. Winkity wink. Wink, wink. And someone smothered him. Hmm. So there's that. Um, and then, of course, Howard Carter opened the tomb, and he died well over 16 years later on March 2nd, 1939. However, some have still attributed his death to the curse just, like, really slow, I guess. <laughs> so while this was all happening and people are going crazy over, you know, King Tut's tomb and all this stuff, um, it really kind of, Egyptomania kind of spread to a lot of different aspects of, like, entertainment and culture. Yeah. Like uh, American stage magician Charles Carter, he rebranded himself as Carter the Great on his Egyptian-themed advertisements. Um, there were plays, movies, and books all romanticizing the exotic Nile Delta mm -hmm. and the ancient people who lived there. Um, jewelers, fashion designers, architects, industrial designers, graphic designers, every aesthetic field went absolutely nuts over Egyptian style and symbols. And so in the 1930s, this idea of Art Deco really has a lot of like this angular... Egyptian quality to it. And so it really influenced like the design of a lot of aspects of everyday life um, that you still see in these kinds of antiques and just kind right. of like 1930 style. It's very like entrenched in 1930 style. And the gold. Oh, the gold. So in the 60s and 70s, Egyptomania struck again with, 19 <laughs> <laughs> with 1963's Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor. Yes. Uh, and where that connection between America and Egypt was reinforced with a tour of Tut's exhibition. Um, also, Steve Martin in the, in the early 70s did his did a dumb song oh, about King Tut yeah. on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. So Americans kind of welcomed this distraction of a dazzling distant culture where the treasures of Tutankhamun arrived in the mid-70s in the wake of Watergate and inflation and an energy crisis. So the exhibition toured all over the U.S. Um, and North America, and it featured some of the most spectacular objects found in his tomb, including his funeral mask and a large model boat meant to shuttle him to the afterworld. Um, they were sent from Egypt in a goodwill gesture arranged by Richard Nixon and Egyptian leader Anwar Sadat to seal a new diplomatic understanding just months before Nixon resigned. Mm -hmm. So by the time the show opened in November 1976 at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., Jimmy Carter had just been elected president and the United States was celebrating its bicentennial. More than 835,000 people came to see the show in D.C., more than the population of the city itself, <laughs> and people lined up around the three-block-long building for up to four hours. Wow. The museum sold $100,000 worth of souvenirs every week, and that's in 1976 dollars. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, television specialists provided close-ups so that anyone, anywhere, could become an armchair Egyptologist. So it's this idea that because it happened at the same time as the bicentennial, for American culture at that time, this 
you know, fascination with ancient Egypt and this ex- exhibition that was so huge really cemented and was like coincided with this patriotism of the bicentennial and very American. So it became kind of part of American culture by default because it was happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Cool. Um, right now, uh, Tutankhamun's tomb is open to the public at an additional charge to that of general admission to the Valley of the Kings. Uh, the number of visitors was limited to 400 per day in 2008. Um, a project for the conservation and management of the tomb was undertaken by the Getty Conservation mm. Institute. Um, in 2009, Factum Foundation for Digital Technology and Conservation began work on a replica of the tomb, which was opened about a mile from the original in 2014. And the Getty Conservation Institute completed its work in 2019, marking the most significant conservation project on the tomb to date. Wow. Um, also, Egypt, Midi- Egypt mania kind of exists still today. Yeah. So um, there is a great, my favorite fashion show of all time is the Christian Dior by John Galliano Couture Show, Spring Summer 2004. Um, it is all Egypt theme, and it's it's on YouTube. Please look it up. The quality is not great because it's 2004, mm-hmm. um, but all these all these models are wearing like full Egyptian regalia down to like the metal beard. Like the metal mm-hmm. beard is actually called a pastiche. Mm-hmm. That's a trivia thing for you. The metal beard that um, that pharaohs wore whether they had a beard or not, is called a pastiche. And it was attached to the head with like a strap. Um, but like full headdresses. There's even um, there's even a model in like full mummy wrapping. And she oh has like this giant, like in, like a jewel-encrusted scarab like attached to her shoulder. Oh it's, oh, it's such a beautiful show. It's incredible. Please look it up, you guys. It's amazing. Um, but essentially the question is like, why are we so obsessed with ancient Egyptian art and culture? And essentially, oh, do you have a guess? Because it's so different. <laughs> yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Like, it's so different. It's so kind of otherworldly. It's mm-hmm. super mysterious, mm-hmm. right? The culture of Egypt mania combines the most exciting parts of treasure hunting and secret knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Things are hidden in pyramids and tombs and sarcophagi. There's false doors. Um, even hieroglyphs require a code to kind of understand them. These mysteries are not just the result of lost understanding, but were in some cases kind of cultivated by the Egyptians themselves, which is even more intriguing. Yeah. This was a culture kind of steeped in secrets and esoteric knowledge. Um, there was this uh, ritual called the Mysteries of Osiris, and it was held every year when the floodwaters of the Nile receded. And it was led by priests who prepared figures of Osiris, who is the god of renewal in the underworld. Um, in the secrecy of a temple. And then there's the ancient Egyptian intense preoccupation with death, right? Right. From mummification to carefully arranged tombs to the Book of the Dead, the ancient Egyptians were as invested in the afterlife as they were mm-hmm. in the here and now. So this it's this idea of to examine their kind of elaborate views on mortality is to kind of reflect on our own. Yeah. Right? I think, so, you know, as a kid... I clearly mm-hmm. liked history and ner- yeah. nerdy things. But I had like a couple of like, I th- they were either like a special magazine issue or it was like a special like paperback book or whatever. But mm-hmm. I had one on ancient Egypt. I had one on dinosaurs. I had one on like buried treasure and all of these things. Like I probably read them cover to cover like a hundred times like no yeah. joke like every single little sidebar every single little article I just found it all so fascinating especially mm-hmm. the ancient Egypt one and I loved I think the I think the thing about the Egypt one was that it was so so long ago like this mm-hmm. like it's it's presented as as being like oh yes this this old group of people many 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 centuries ago mm-hmm. and that it was really interesting. Whereas like if you yeah. would have given me like an ancient Rome book, I'd be like, oh, great. Look, hmm, bunch of guys wearing yeah. togas and it's, fighting people. It's a, but the Egypt stuff like, is like, like you said, like it has this like magical quality. Mm-hmm. Like there's all, like you have the mythology behind it that yep. we know so much about that they really did stuff in their everyday lives with that. Along with how cool the hieroglyphics look that we can yeah. actually like look at these pictures and we can you know look at we can tell as a text or that sort of thing and we can mm-hmm. almost try to figure it out ourselves which 
is like it's yeah. like a code. It's really cool. And then the, all of the stuff about about mummification and burial and Mm -hmm. you know i think i was probably five years old when i read that they take the brain out through the nose yes of the mummies and i probably told every kid in my kindergarten class and i probably got probably got detention in catholic school for telling people (laughs) that but like yeah it's just like just some of these things that were just so exotic yes i think that that's what really captured it and i feel like that's probably a lot of that for a lot of other people who are into history and art and that kind of thing like you just get like some of this stems from we learned about this when we were younger and like you yeah. get kind of you know you Stuck have this in. affinity toward it yeah absolutely and I feel like ancient Egypt is like in the sweet spot of history where like earlier things we don't know enough about mm-hmm. so it's like eh, we don't know why they did this or like we don't know why they did this and Rome and Greece we know too much about yeah. because they because they wrote down their own histories right mm-hmm. like they had a full like they their culture was about historiography mm-hmm. where they wanted to write down for posterity for their you know future families for their future generations they want them to know because you know we're super important and we run the Mediterranean mm-hmm. and whatever but like Egypt is just mysterious enough. And like you said, it's so aesthetically beautiful. Like it's so mysterious and kind of weirdly alien, but also like aesthetically gorgeous and and like kind of timeless and it's like kind of aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea of mythology is like people love that kind of one-to-one, like this animal represents this God. And it kind of gives you that personalized, like, well, if I was an ancient Egyptian, I would, I would, um, I would worship Ishtar because she's the goddess of this and this, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it, it allows you to kind of like enter into it in like a safe way. Yeah. Um, because it is a culture that is so, so one, so long ago. Um, and two, there's no existing ancient Egyptians. There's no one else who, there's no one who, who's like, uh, worships or, or like practices this religion. Right. So it's kind of, you know, quote unquote safe to kind of like immerse yourself in it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's like, it's the perfect mix of all the things that we as human beings just like fucking love. Right. Um. And I, so yeah. in, in my arc, intro to archives course that I teach, um, we do a week on the history of record keeping and the creation of records. And mm-hmm. while some of you people out there might not be that thrilled by it, it is a very exciting class. And yeah. you talk about how basically, yes, of course we're going to talk about papyrus and how that was like, sure. what kind of leads us into the first types of records that are kept in papyrus strips and how they make papyrus. And that the Egyptians were really like, aside from um, the Sumerians who were doing cuneiform on clay tablets. Yeah. Like the Egyptians were among the first that we know of that actually kept um, handwritten records, you know, usually to mark like monetary things or, you know, financial things. But then that evolved into writing down rituals and, you know, Mm -hmm. stories and that kind of thing. So we were evolving from the oral tradition into the written tradition. And Egypt was one of the first, places that that happened which is really cool Mm -hmm. yeah it's so cool cool so that was about egyptomania but my but my quiz today is called is about movies that have to do with ancient egypt delightful question number one the agatha christie novel death on the nile tells the tale of a dead body on a cruise ship on you guessed it the nile river which of Christie's popular detectives is the protagonist in this tale? Question number two. The movie Cleopatra, starring the stunning and incomparable Elizabeth Taylor, came out in 1963, where it was the most expensive movie ever made at the time. She also met and began a love affair with her co-star and later married him. Who was this dashingly handsome actor who she would go on to have a very torrid relationship with? Question number three. The Ten Commandments is a 1956 epic featuring ancient Egypt and a cast of literally thousands. We all know the infamous Charlton Heston played Moses, but what bald actor played the Pharaoh who also played a different king in a different movie the same year? Question number four. The Scorpion King is a 2002 sword and sand epic starring our fave guy, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, in his first starring role. However, I'm asking about the titular king. True or false, there was actually a scorpion king in ancient Egypt. Question number five. The 1999 film The Mummy was based on a 1932 pre-code film of the same name. 
While maybe not as famous as Brendan Fraser, the 1932 film starred a big name in horror who loved getting into makeup. What creepy actor am I talking about? Question number six. The 2016 film Gods of Egypt was probably something you didn't see because it was terrible and no one saw it and it was a box office bomb. It starred an incredible cast of known stars, though, including Chadwick Boseman, Jeffrey Rush, and Gerard Butler. The miserable director, Alex Proyas, hasn't made a feature film since, but he is best known for an ill-fated 1994 film starring Brandon Lee. What is this movie? Question number seven. This popular French-Belgian comic book character with a giant blonde mustache and wings on his head made a movie where he met Cleopatra, which makes sense because he and his friends are Gaul warriors who had had adventures in and around ancient Rome during the time of Julius Caesar. Who is this character who is not a tiny star, who also had a giant best friend named Obelix and a dog named Iodifix? Question number eight. The 1948 short Mummies, Dummies is an American slapstick comedy that starred the current iteration of these three comedians whose legacy had remarkably endured. What is the name of this comedy trio? Question number nine. The DreamWorks animated film The Prince of Egypt was surprisingly popular and pretty good, but 90s kids will remember the epic soundtrack duet entitled When You Believe. What powerhouse duo sang this single? And finally, question number 10. I don't know if you know this, but there was another The Mummy movie made in 2017 starring Tom Cruise and inexplicably this adorable comic actor who played Nick in New Girl. Who is this actor? We'll give you a minute to think about it and we'll be back with your answers. I got a couple of coin flips. Okay. We'll see how this goes. Okay, great. I love it. All right, you ready? Yes. Here we go. The Agatha Christie novel, Death on the Nile, tells the tale of a dead body on a cruise ship on, you guessed it, the Nile River. Which of Christie's popular detectives is the protagonist in this tale? It's got to be Hercule Poirot. It is Hercule Poirot. There's no way Miss Marple was on the Nile. She wouldn't get on a boat, although she was very adventurous for her, you know, for her for her type. Um, <laughs> next year, a new movie of it is coming out directed by and shock of shock starring Kenneth Branagh. Huh. Um, I don't recognize Kenneth Branagh as an appropriate Hercule Poirot. It will always be David Suchet to me, but whatever. So be it. So be it. Also, his mustache is all wrong. Like it needs to be like a tiny curly mustache. It can't be like this giant floofy thing, whatever. Um, question number two. The movie Cleopatra starring the stunning and incomparable Elizabeth Taylor came out in 1963, where it was the most expensive movie ever made at the time. She also met and began a love affair with her co-star and later married him. Who was this dashingly handsome actor who she would go on to have a very torrid relationship with? This is Richard Burton. It is Richard Burton. They were famously married twice. Um, But did you know the Egyptian government originally banned Elizabeth Taylor from entering Egypt because she was Jewish? I don't remember hearing that. I did not hear about How that. About um, that? Th- they later changed their minds when they realized the film would pour millions of dollars yeah. into their economy. So, yeah. Um, incidentally, side mm-hmm. related. No, please. Um, I I have stumbled upon a podcast recommendation. Um, there's one called Even the Rich. It's on the Wondery Network. So it's with Brooke Sifrin and Arisha Skidmore Williams. And they did a four episode arc on Elizabeth Taylor. And it Ooh. was wonderful. I learned so much. Um, oh, man. So they've covered like 
various members of the Kennedy family and various <gasps> members of the oh, of the royal family. Ooh. And I'm, I just fin- I just wrapped up the four episodes on Madonna. And so oh my God. Yeah, it's, it's really awesome. So I, I okay. definitely recommend that a listen. But yeah, their four episodes on Elizabeth Taylor are are terrific. Ooh, okay. I'm definitely checking that out because I love that shit. All right, cool. What was the name of the podcast again? Even the Rich. Even the Rich. Okay, cool. Thank you. All right, question number three. The Ten Commandments is a 1956 epic featuring ancient Egypt and a cast of literally thousands. We all know the infamous Charlton Heston played Moses, but what bald actor played the Pharaoh, who also played a different king in a different movie the same year? This is another person that I wafer between thinking that they aren't real <laughs> and like that it's a that it's a character's name and not their name but oh we're sure yeah Yul Brynner it is Yul Brynner <laughs> um the movie that I'm referring to he played the king in the king, the and, king I? and I yeah yeah he played the king in the king and I on Broadway his entire life <laughs> he literally was playing the king on Broadway like three days before he died like he made this his life um, he also wasn't naturally bald. He shaved his head bald. Huh. Yeah. Also, he was Russian. Did you know this? I think I knew he was Russian. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. I just assumed, I guess he just assumed he was like Middle Eastern or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was Russian. Anyway. <laughs> Yule Brynner. Apparently just not great to women. Oh. Not, a gra- not great to his many wives. So just FYI about that. All right. Question number four about someone who is definitely good to his wife. Uh, The Scorpion King is a 2002 sword and sand epic starring our fave guy, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, in his first starring role. However, I am asking about the titular king. True or false, there was actually a Scorpion King in ancient Egypt. I'm going to say false. It is true. Ah. His name was literally King Scorpion, and he ruled during the proto-dynastic period of Upper Egypt from around 3200 to 3000 BCE. By the way, the term pharaoh um, was not incorporated into ancient Egyptian like culture until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were referred to as like ruler or king uh, for like okay. a very long time. Yeah. Uh, question number five. The 1999 film The Mummy was based on a 1932 pre-code film of the same name. While maybe not as famous as Brendan Fraser, the 1932 film starred a big name in horror who loved getting into makeup. What creepy actor am I talking about? See, this is another coin flip. I think I will say Lon Chaney. Oh, the other one. flip that coin. It's Boris, Boris Karloff. Karloff. Yeah. Um, Boris Karloff was the youngest of nine children <laughs> born in 1887 in England, and his given name was William Pratt. Yeah. We talked about this in that Halloween episode that we yeah. did. Well, his name is just yeah. oh, oh, Bill Pratt. Yeah. <laughs> And he took the name Boris Karloff because he he thought that his brothers would who they they I guess were like in the kind of like upper ups of British oh, society or whatever. He didn't want to you know shame them by he didn't want to shame the Pratt name, so <laughs> he changed his name to Boris Karloff. <laughs> oh, he never actually legally changed his name ever. Uh-huh. So when he would sign documents, oh. um, not his not. <laughs> You know, he would sign documents, William Pratt, a.k.a. Boris yeah. Karloff, in quotes. Wow. Yeah, that's cute. All right, question number six. The 2016 film Gods of Egypt was probably something you didn't see because it was terrible and no one saw it and it was a box office bomb. It starred an incredible cast of known stars, though, including Chadwick Boseman, Jeffrey Rush, and Gerard Butler. Jeffrey Rush and I have the same birthday, by the way. Oh, um, well, congrats. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you guys have so uh, much the- in common. <laughs> We do. We, do. we both are Australian. We're both elderly men. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> the miserable director of this film, Alex Proyas, hasn't made a feature film since, but he is best known for an ill-fated 1994 film starring Brandon Lee. What is this movie? I believe that's The Crow. It is The Crow. Um, if you don't know already, Brandon Lee, son of Bruce Lee, was accidentally shot on set and died after a mishap with the prop guns. It's like such a freak accident. Yeah, somebody accidentally put a real bullet in the chamber instead of a blank. Apparently it was like, it was a, um, it wasn't a real bullet. It was some other thing that they use. That's still like a prop thing, but it got stuck in the chamber and they thought it had, it had been discharged. So when they fired, when they put the blank in and the blank fired, it projected this thing 
into his body at the same rate of speed in the same like you know density as a real bullet would be and they like shot him in the stomach it was awful what a terrible way to go okay (laughs) question (laughs) question number seven this popular French-Belgian comic book character with a giant blonde mustache and wings on his head made a movie where he met Cleopatra, which makes sense because he and his friends are Gaul warriors who have adventures in and around ancient Rome during the time of Julius Caesar. Who is this character who is not a tiny star, who also has a giant best friend named Obelix and a dog named Idefix? That is Asterix. This is Asterix. Uh, Asterix, I, who I knew le- next to nothing about before I wrote this question. He's his own uh, theme park. Oh, my God. He's created in 1959 by writer René Goschini and illustrator Albert Uderzo. Since then, 35 books in the series have been released, with Uderzo taking over writing duties after the death of Goschini in 1977. Uh, Asterix has also appeared in several animated and live-action film adaptations of the series and serves as the mascot of the amusement park Park Asarix. Before that, he was also the mascot of the magazine Pilot. Wild. Never knew about it. What a thing. The French love love their comics. Lord. They love their comics. It's a big thing. The Belgians. Oh my God, the Belgians, the Belgians. love their comics. Yeah. Tintin. Oh, Tintin. Oh, watch out. And the Smurfs? Get out of here. Question number eight. The 1948 short Mummies Dummies is an American slapstick comedy that starred the current iteration of these three comedians whose legacy has remarkably endured. What is the name of this comedy trio? Is it the Three Stooges? It is the Three Stooges. Okay. <laughs> I was like, uh, well, she said there's three of them a couple times and I don't know if that <laughs> is discounting. Them. No. Okay. No. It's not the Trey Stooges. <laughs> um, the Three Stooges appeared in 190 short films and 220 feature-length films throughout their 40-year career as a group from 1930 to 1970. Bless them. They also had a rotating cast of third guys with mm-hmm. only Larry and Moe being the constants. Mm-hmm. Um, you also had Shemp, Curly, Joe, then Curly Joe. Um <laughs> Shemp and Curly, they were the actual brothers of Moe and yeah. probably would have continued, except Shemp died in 1955 and Curly died in 1952. So they had to like, bring on other guys. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. Wow. So, so Okay. So like Moe, Larry, and Curly weren't around for 40 years. It was like no. Moe, Larry, and Curly for like 10 years. Yeah, basically. Yep. I had no idea. That's like the, that's who, that's who they are in my head. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where and they I made knew the Shemp most. was around at some point, but yeah, Shemp was around for I think only like five years or something. Whew. It was a very short amount of time. Whew. Yeah, Curly, Larry, and Mo. Hot. I know, right? Curly, Larry, and Mo were like they were the they were the ones. They were the superstars. You know, that was what. Why I oughta? Right? Doink. I can't stand those movies. They're the worst. Um, but that's just per- you know what they're well beloved, and you know what I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum. Um. Question number nine. The DreamWorks animated film The Prince of Egypt was surprisingly popular and pretty good, but 90s kids will remember the epic soundtrack duet entitled When You Believe. What powerhouse duo sang this single? I don't have a goddamn clue. I don't know what this song is. I don't know anything. When you believe. You don't know this song? I don't think I know the song. Oh, this was Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. Huh. They duetted on the song. You should, you know what? Put on a pair of headphones and listen to it. It All is right. just. I will. The, at one point, the two of them are like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, they're like trading like runs. Oh my it's gosh. It's incredible. At one point in the music video, they're performing together and they're literally like gripping each other and just like singing their asses off. It rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very I good. I don't think, I don't know it. I can picture like the Prince of Egypt, like movie poster mm-hmm. and that's yeah. as much as I know. Uh, the Prince of Egypt also had like a superstar voice cast as well. Like Sandra Bullock did a voice and like I, I got to, you know what? I'm going to look it up. Wow. Because there was, it was like, it was like a sleeper. Yeah. It came out in 1998. So of course this is like, this was like, you know, peak Mariah Carey and peak Whitney Houston. Um, we have Rafe Fiennes. We have Sandra Bullock. We have Patrick Stewart. We have Michelle Pfeiffer. We have Helen Mirren. We have Steve Martin. 
We also have Val Kilmer as the voice of God. I mean, this wow. movie, definitely wow. check it out. It's wild. It's wild. It's wild. Um, also, with regards to the duet, apparently, contrary to all tabloid speculation, Whitney and Mariah got along fantastically. They each had nothing but positive things to say about each other. Apparently, the tabloids wanted them to like absolutely hate each other yeah. and beat each other's throats, but they were cool with each other. Mm. Good, good, good. Question number 10. I don't know if you know this, but there was another The Mummy movie made in 2017 starring Tom Cruise and inexplicably this adorable comic actor who played Nick in New Girl. Who is this actor? Jake Jake Johnson. Yes. Good job. Yeah. So Jake Johnson is adorable, but I got to tell you about this Mummy movie. It's uh-huh. wild, y'all. Yeah. It's wild. I have it some has- like vague recollections of the internet like losing its mind over the trailer just to be like why what why what it's it has a dr jekyll mr hyde subplot (laughs) and he's played by russell crowe and apparently this movie was intended to kickstart what was known as the dark universe which was an attempt to create a modern cinematic universe based on the classic universal monsters film series oh yeah yeah, yeah. okay because everybody was looking at like you got a marvel universe in a DC yeah, universe. everybody wanted to do. Well, what can we yeah. do? So we're gonna do we monsters. monsters. So they wanted to do like Mummy and the Invisible Man, and you know, Creature from the Black Dracula, Lagoon. Creature from yeah. the Black Lagoon. Yeah, exactly. Wolfman. But apparently, this yeah. this movie did so badly that they scrapped it. <laughs> they were like, "Forget it, JK, forget JK, it. forget it. It's not gonna happen." So, oh my god, it's crazy. Good job. Nice Thanks. job. Great questions. Thank you. Um, I didn't see most of those, but I should watch the Scorpion King just so I can just so you know, give my boy Dwayne just a little good job. You (laughs) great. (laughs) We love your work. We love your work. Good job. Yeah, you're great. Um, so thanks so much for listening guys. And thanks for my Egyptomania. Egyptomania. Very cool. Um, thank you. And, uh, shoot, hopefully you have all had an outstanding October. Yes. An outstanding and we will October. see you. Oh yeah. And again, we're, we're putting, we're, we're putting, putting that out in the universe. Retro- retroactively, we're saying you're going to have a great outstanding October. And if you haven't yet, then for the rest of October, it's going to be amazing. So, um, we will see you again in, yeah, November. in a few weeks. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye.